Uh, Gareth is currently a second year postgraduate research student at UCL, where he also completed his BA in Ancient History and an MA in Modern History, so he's uh, covered the bases pretty well. His area of research is North America <coughs> in the 18th and 19th centuries, specifically exploring American attitudes towards and ideas about British North America. Um, he has been a journalist and broadcaster for over 20 years, has filmed and reported many times on Canada, most recently for The Guardian on the new Canadian Museum for Human Rights in Winnipeg. He has won uh, numerous awards uh, for his journalism and is the only journalist to have been twice awarded top Canadian travel story in the international category by the Canadian Tourism Commission. So a journalist turned academic, or journalist and academic. So uh, great pleasure to <coughs> introduce uh, Gareth and his topic, Quebec in the British American Orbit, 1760-74. Thank you very much, Tony, and um, thank you everyone for coming here. I'm thrilled to be addressing the Canadian seminar and very grateful for this opportunity to share some of my research with you. You may have been wondering about the title. Well, for those of you who guessed it, yes, it is a play on the lyric from The Wizard of Oz, Lions and Tigers and Bears, oh my. But this is not a paper on Hollywood musicals. Bear with me and all will be revealed. The words John Adams, soon-to-be rebel patriot and eventual second president of the United States, wrote in his diary in January 1766 strike us as those of a voice in the wilderness. Sitting on his farm in Braintree, Massachusetts, Adams was commenting on Quebec's response to the Stamp Act, the attempt by the British government to tax North America past the previous year and vigorously opposed by the British American colonies. On January the 2nd, he wrote, and I will read it, I pity my unhappy fellow subjects in Quebec and Halifax, for the great misfortune that has befallen them. Quebec consists chiefly of Frenchmen who are mixed with a few English and awed by an army. Though it seems the discontent there is so great that the Gazette is dropped. He referred to the cessation of the Quebec Gazette on November the 1st, 1765, when the Act came into force. The newspaper returned to publication later the following May when news arrived in the colonies of the Act's repeal. It was six years since Quebec, then known as Nouvelle-France, had surrendered to the British, and the French, Britain's main imperial rival, had been driven from the continental mainland. By 1763, the termination of what we call the Seven Years' War, but what contemporaries more aptly titled the Great War for Empire, the map of North America had been transformed. Nouvelle-France was reinvented as the province of Quebec and entered the British North American orbit. That in 1766 Adam seems to us such a lone voice reflects what in historiographical terms could be described as the silence of the 1760s and early 1770s. And by that, I mean the absence of any examination in the existing historiography of the relationship between Quebec and its American neighbours during the pre-revolutionary decade. 
How British colonists engaged with the new province is ignored, subsumed to a predominant narrative of imperial dislocation and eventual independence. True, for Americanists drawn to Quebec, two events loom large. Firstly, the conquest of the province with its bell ringing and transatlantic celebration of British imperial prowess is a popular option with historians of the revolutionary period eager to set the scene. What better way of kicking off a dramatic narrative of imperial decline than with the empire at its peak? Gibbon would have concurred. And here are some typical examples of that approach. And secondly, at the heart of the revolutionary narrative, you have the British Act of Parliament that helped push the American colonies towards rebellion, the Quebec Act of 1774. The Quebec Act requires some explanation, not only for those of you who may be unfamiliar with it, but I suggest because British Americans' response to the Act was determined to some extent by a particular understanding of their relationship with Quebec that had evolved post-conquest. The truth is that when France in 1763 ceded its North American territory, Britain acquired what could be called une patate chaude, a hot potato. The population was overwhelmingly French-speaking Catholic, sorry, French-speaking Canadien and Roman Catholic. A minority English-speaking group of Protestants, the Canadians, had settled post-conquest, but they numbered in the low hundreds and were dwarfed by the 70,000 or so Canadiens. The Quebec Act, long in gestation, therefore sought to solve the seemingly unsolvable. How Protestant Britain was to effectively incorporate into the fabric of empire a new territory dominated by a hostile religion practiced by a people who until very recently had been British America's long-standing enemy. The 1763 Peace of Paris that terminated the Seven Years' War had assured a limited exercise of Catholicism in the province, and a royal proclamation of that year promised the establishment of a representative government. But the British solution arrived at in 1774 was both novel and radical. The Act provided a government without elected representatives, a seemingly strengthened Catholic Church, the withholding of habeas corpus and dangerously novel borders extending deep into the North American interior. In fact, it assailed an entrenched British identity that in the North American context was firmly anti-Catholic, pro-representative government, decidedly anti-French and steeped in Magna Carta. No wonder colonists on the verge of rebellion labelled it intolerable. And historians of the American Revolution have been citing the impact of the act ever since Peter Oliver wrote the first account of the revolution, his origin and progress of the American Rebellion, way back in 1781. In plugging the gap between conquest and Quebec Act, maybe Canadian historians would be of help, but alas, no. Canadianists examining the establishment of the new province tend to be introspective, focusing on the integration of Quebec into a longer narrative of the British Empire. In 1937, Donald Crichton contributed the commercial empire of the St. Lawrence, 1760-1850, to the influential 25-volume series The Relations of Canada and the United States, 
sponsored by the Carnegie Endowment for International Peace and published between 1936 and 45. Whilst avoiding the political pitfalls of that series with its tendency to emphasise similarity and not difference between Canadians and Americans and its trumpeting of the undefended border, Crichton, however, offers no insight into the evolving relationship between Quebec and the older British colonies. The chapter that focuses on the 1760s and 1770s is concerned with the activities of the province's merchants in their dealings with Britain and in the American interior. New York makes a brief appearance as a competitor in the fur trade. Hilda Neatby's Quebec, the Revolutionary Age, 1760 to 1791, her 1966 contribution to the Canadian centenary <coughs> series does what it says on the tin. She provides an examination of Quebec's transition to British province in which the remainder of British North America only impedes with the coming of revolution. John G. Reed's and Elizabeth Manx's opening chapter to Phillips, 2008 volume in the Oxford History of the British Empire companion series, Canada and the British Empire, trawl the 17th and 18th centuries, providing a broad overview of developments in those regions that were, would emerge as a surviving British North America at the end of the War of Independence. But even British imperial historians are dismissive, clinging to established historiographical arcs. P.J. Marshall's 1998 Oxford History of the British Empire volume on the 18th century underlines the perceived disconnect between Quebec and its neighbours. The province is relegated to a chapter by Peter Marshall entitled British North America, 1760 to 1815, thus teleologically affirming its separate, its separate destiny. In this construct, the broader contours and dynamics of British North America, 1760 to 1783, are denied. Even Stephen Foster's 2013 Oxford History Companion volume, British North America in the 17th and 18th centuries, whilst aiming to plug existing lacunae, barely mentions Quebec. Actually, I think it's mentioned three times. The province is truly a lost horizon. And yet the early, sorry, and yet the 1760s and early 1770s was a period in which the colonial press flourished, reporting on a broad strata of topics that popularised the news across British North America. And in his 1997 book, Colonial American Newspapers, Character and Content, David Copeland identifies them. Religion and slaves, crime and comets, obituaries and animals, disease and weather, Native Americans and medicine, sensationalism and agriculture. What's important to note is that Quebec contributed in all these areas. Without exploring, therefore, how the province functioned in this public discourse, one in which most colonists, many of whom would become citizens of the United States, engaged, it is impossible to effectively assess the impact of the Quebec Act or the province's role in the war for independence. Indeed, the open-ended invitation to Canada in the Articles of Confederation to become part of the fledgling USA is only explicable if we take into proper account the way in which Americans had regarded Quebec since its conquest. In assessing the realignment of British North America in the 1760s and 70s, 
John Adams's January 2nd diary entry <coughs> provides a useful entry point. It's important to recognise that the information he transmits does not automatically imply that he was engaged in private correspondence or that he was privy to arcane information. I suggest that Adams, like many colonists, had read his newspaper. The Boston Evening Post at the end of December 1765 reported that the Gazette had been dropped, their customers all refusing to receive it if stamped. And both the Post and Adams displayed a shared assumption. Adams was clearly aware of the complex societal makeup of the new province, majority Canadian, minority Canadian. But for him, the fate of the Gazette suggested unity of discontent with the Stamp Act. The Post's reference to the paper's unhappy customers all suggests a similar conclusion. Established on June the 21st, 1764, the Quebec Gazette was read by both Canadians and Canadiens, and was, as Michael Amon has reminded us, British North America's only bilingual newspaper from its beginnings during the period. For Adams and the Post, therefore, Canadians and Canadiens are complicit with their fellow colonists in their opposition to taxed paper. Their conclusion, however, is problematic. As Adams himself inferred, and historians from W.B. Kerr to Neatby have since recognised, the great misfortune that befell Quebec was the population's acquiescence to the, to the Stamp Act. This was confirmed in colonial newspaper coverage. The New York Mercury in December 1765 reported, the very disagreeable intelligence of the Stamp Act having taken place in that province and of a Captain Blow who had arrived with a stamped letter pass with him from Governor Murray. The Boston Evening Post affirmed the same a week later, prior to its news of the discontinuation of the Quebec Gazette. By January 1766, the Post was reduced to explaining Quebec's submission. The stamps we hear are by a military power if forced upon the inhabitants of Canada, Nova Scotia, and the new conquered settlements in America. Canadians and Canadians are victims and a warning to all of the dangers of a standing army. In truth, those in Quebec who vocally opposed the act and expressed their opposition were a minority. Those Anglo-Protestant Canadians who were already dissatisfied with the Quebec regime now embraced the anti-stamp act cause and it was they who communicated their dissent and encouragement to their fellow colonists in the wider colonial press. The calamities and distresses occasioned by the Stamp Act in this place is inconceivable, <coughs> groaned a Canadian from Montreal in a letter published by both the New York Mercury and Boston Evening Post. He outlined the difficulties in purchasing stamps and the ruinous effect they were having on his income. To his fellow colonists, he concluded with, I say God support you in your resolutions and endeavours to oppose it. Opinions such as these strengthened colonial newspapers' construction of a communal solidarity. The Mercury and the Post reported, His Majesty's new subjects in Canada begin to grumble about the Stamp Act and begin to say, Where is now your English liberty? But grumble though the new subjects might, Canadians and Canadians universally complied in the payment of the tax. 
Misconstruing of Quebec's response to the Stamp Act suggests an inclination on the part of some British Americans, even so soon post-conquest, to view the province with a surprising equivalence. For them, it seems, Quebec had become a conspicuous partner, an albeit stifled supporter, of a broader political community. The extent to which this new appreciation acquired broader parameters, however, requires engaging with colonial press <coughs> coverage of Quebec across the decade between 1764 and 74, a subject for which the existing historiography provides little assistance. For many years, analysis of the colonial press of this period was concerned with the great revolutionary preamble, and here are some examples of this approach. Discussion of Quebec has recently materialised, though the province persists to be a detached adjunct. Michael Amon's 2015 work, Imprinting Britain, Newspaper Sociability and the Shaping of British North America, is a study focusing on the emergent print culture in Halifax and Quebec City. It celebrates its, I quote, conscious departure from the rich scholarly debate that addresses print and its reception and role in daily life in the 13 British North America colonies that would later form the United States of America, end of quote. It therefore ignores Quebec's contribution to both reception and role, despite conceding that in 1769, over 30 printers, stationers, and schoolmasters from across America received free subscriptions to the Quebec Gazette. The examination I've taken of the press in the 13 colonies, however, shifts focus to the extent that recognizing Quebec's place as an incorporated part of the colonial presence becomes a distinct possibility. Indeed, what is surprising is the breadth of scope which colonial newspapers reveal in their reporting on their new neighbour. Because of the um, parameters of my overall thesis, which I'll, I'll mention at the end of this paper, um, I, at times during my study, have to involve myself in the sampling of material. So in this case, I focused on four newspapers across the decade, 1764 to 74, chosen as they reflect a diverse geography and political outlook. The testimony of these newspapers confirms that Canadian Catholicism continued to cause concern, especially in New England. But what is most striking is the paucity of debate the subject generated. This is surprising, given that a new Catholic bishop was appointed to Quebec in 1766, an event that was reported in the most positive tones across the northern colonies. Even more surprising is that this was a time when, as Stephen Waldman reminds us, many colonists were becoming nearly hysterical over the possibility that England would send bishops to live in the colonies. Fears of the establishment of American episcopacy and its role in the deteriorating relationship between, with Britain have been extensively explored, but analysis of the impact of Quebec's Catholic bishop remains absent. I ought to say that Carl Breidenbaugh makes brief reference to his arrival in his 1982 book, Mitre and Scepter, but Breidenbaugh's focus is the conflict between dissenters and Anglicans in the main. In fact, <clears throat> during the Episcopal debates of the 1760s, 
Quebec's Catholic bishop is barely mentioned. For example, he does not feature in the 21 installments of The Sentinel, in which Francis Allison, John Dickinson and George Bryan alerted their fellow Pennsylvanians to the dangers of an episcopate. He is first referred to in December 1768, when a report from London, published in the Boston Evening News and New York Gazette, stated that the reason for the popish bishop in Canada was to furnish a pretense for establishing a Protestant prelatic hierarchy throughout all the other English colonies in America. But the theory was not reiterated until December 1771. Greater unease arose from a growing sense that the Protestantization of Quebec had stalled. Correspondents expressed their concerns in letters to publishers, which provoked debate, though the numbers involved were, min were minute, and opinion seems to have been evenly divided. Some suspected Catholicism reinforcement, others held a persistent belief that it would wane. Few were those who anticipated the contents of the Quebec Act. In February 1772, the Post seemed to anticipate the coming storm when a farmer's son addressed the king, acidly commenting, What more could James II have done in Grenada than is now carrying on there? Catholics, by the way, were allowed to vote and even sit in the Grenadian Assembly. And as for Canada, all discouragements imaginable are given to the conversion of Papists, even to the Church of England. And Junius Americanus in the post that August accused Lord Hillsborough, Secretary of State for the Colonies, of establishing the Roman Catholic religion in Canada, Nova Scotia and Grenada. Most colonial newspapers, however, remained silent on the subject. Quaker John Dickinson broached Canada in letter eight of his famous letters from a farmer in Pennsylvania but then only to contradict British claims that American taxation was necessary to finance the province's protection. From its inception, Quebec proffered other subjects of far more interest to publishers and their readers. This conclusion is suggested by the significant amount of print they consistently occupied throughout the decade. The area in which the impact of Quebec's incorporation into British North America was most tangible was in trade. In the Post, Gazette and Pennsylvania Chronicle, this certainly reflected the interests of merchants in Boston, New York and Philadelphia. But it also functioned in another way for a broader readership. It provided persistent testimony of Quebec's role within a shared <coughs> empire. The new acquisition quickly became a destination for merchant shipping, in 1764, only a year after the peace, nine outward and inward-bound cargoes to and from Quebec via New York's Custom House were reported between March 5th and August 27th. By 1767, between March 30th and November 23rd, the number had risen to 13. And as late as 1774, there were five between May 2nd and September 12th, the decline possibly explained by rumours of the Quebec Act and the Act's eventual publication across the colonies in August. In this trade, the broader involvement of British American merchants is, is suggested by the fact that other colonial newspapers reported on the clearance of goods and their arrival at New York's Custom House.
The Pennsylvania Chronicle cited the individuals involved, so for example, the arrival in New York of a shipment by Smith bound for Quebec, or the clearance of the goods of coming for export. The Custom House of Philadelphia piloted, piloted its own import and export business to the new province. And on August 8, 1774, the New York Gazette published an advert from which it can be inferred that Quebec had become an important part of British North America's mercantile networks, despite concerns over the Quebec Act. I realise this is virtually impossible to read, so um, I shall elaborate. Joseph Thorpe, the advert stated, had absconded with a significant sum of money with which he had been entrusted for delivery to Quebec. Thorpe had played the part of merchant in both Boston and that province, and had traded at Newcastle, Virginia. Whoever secures the said Joseph Thorpe, it was announced and ensured his conviction, would be eligible for a reward of £50. Whilst Thorpe's activities revealed the breadth of opportunity afforded to a man on the make by the expansion of trade across the colonies, most revealing is the list of those, of those to whom an application for the reward should be made. It reads, apply to Curzon and Seaton of New York, Joseph Wharton, Jr. of Philadelphia, Robert Christie of Baltimore, James Gibson and Co. Virginia, John Bodefield of Quebec, Malatai of Bourne and John Rowe of Boston. That all were committed to ensuring the payment of the reward suggests that all were equally involved in whatever venture had encouraged them to commit the considerable sum in half Johannes of nine penny weight to the untrustworthy Thorpe. In this multiple network, Quebec appears as a co-equal. The colonial press reassured readers of the province's entrenchment in the imperial orbit throughout the period by sustaining a commitment to news from London, despite an identified increase in the importance of local news. And these reports made reference repeatedly to the bounties anticipated and supposedly in some cases realised by the acquisition of France's lost colony. Whether or not the premiums offered for the advantage of British American dominions by the Society Instituted of London for the encouragement of arts, manufacturers and commerce in 1764 that included Canada may have been seen by colonists as an opportunity or a cause for concern is difficult to ascertain. But the mere inclusion of Quebec in the British fold must surely have resonated as a testament to a vitalised North American geopolitics. Other reports followed, encouragement of the iron industry at Trois-Rivières, plans for the manufacture of hats and guns, commencement of the production of millstones, extension of the distillery trade, promotion of a brass foundry at Montréal, and the use of American oak from Quebec in the construction <laughs> of British vessels. Success shortly followed. In 1765, it was reported that Quebec had generated 50,000 hard dollars, from the export of ironwork to the Spanish settlements of South America. In 1766, 30,000 pigs of iron had been sold to the French and Spanish West Indies. News from London, dated December the 1st, 1767, commented on a flourishing industry, particularly in cast ironware, great quantities of which they exported to the southern colonies. Inexhaustible supplies of furs were reported in the upper lakes of Canada. 
English merchants could rejoice as a chart of <coughs> exports to the continent of America from England, only exclusive of Scotland, noted that the value of exports to Canada had increased from less than £150,000 in 1761 to over £365,000 by 1765. The breadth of imperial export and manufacture mirrored the context in which shipping to and from Quebec was recorded. On New York's Custom House list, the province appeared alongside established destinations such as Virginia, Halifax, Jamaica and Bristol, and inbound entries at Quebec's own Custom House of cargo from Lisbon, Martinique, Madeira and Halifax were noted. The arrival and departure of Quebec vessels to and from Deal in Kent were reported. In short, colonial newspapers captured their new neighbour's emergence as a British North American entrepot in ways that it had implied. It had acquired colonists' own cherished multifaceted identities, provincial, continental and imperial. This served a reassuring purpose whilst Anglo-Protestant British Americans themselves remained committed to the mother country, but boded ill should that commitment come into question and a conflicting vision of Quebec be posited. Much of the press coverage did little to impede roseate impressions. Seamlessly, news from Quebec, the sensational and mundane, was sifted into newspaper columns to fascinate and inform colonial readers, often reassuring them of their own long-established superiority as Britons. Identifying the material's points of origin is difficult. Reports primarily fell into two categories, letters to the publisher or extracts of letters between individuals comparable to those that crossed the Atlantic, and brief reports with the simple heading Quebec and a date. Letters were especially prevalent in New York papers, testifying to Canadians' engagement with its press and their involvement in trade with that city. The extent to which any other than the few specified originated in the Quebec Gazette is questionable. The Gazette has been characterised by A. Albert as far back as 1933 as of distinct though limited value as a source its focus being the outside world, its local news being almost entirely confined to the arrival and departure of ships and of prominent persons. Those prominent persons, however, were of interest to colonial publishers, as most of them were involved in Quebec's administration. Their reporting therefore furnished colonists with the opportunity to gauge the province's progress within a shared empire. The news often originated in London as it focused on government appointments. The confirmation of James Murray in 1764 and Guy Carlton in 1766 as governors was extensively reported, but so too was the progress of others. William Gregory appointed Chief Justice and George Suckling Attorney General in 1764 and William Hay and Francis Maceres to the same roles in 1766. Some reports proved to be little more than rumour. News from London, dated April 18, 1767, in the Georgia Gazette and New York Mercury claimed that Murray had been reconfirmed as 
governor and commander-in-chief of all Canada. This was not the case. Others focused on lesser officials, such as Francis Mackay, made surveyor in the woods in the province of Canada. Reports such as these, true or false, kept colonists abreast of the comings and goings of the Anglo-Protestant functionaries who presided over Quebec and testified to the imperial government's commitment to provincial rule and all that seemed to entail. They also confirmed that the former French dependency was firmly part of the British-American system. So, <laughs> Edward Mainwaring became controller of customs at New Haven, to replace George Mills, who was to be clerk of exports and imports of Boston, who was himself replacing Thomas Irving, the latter having been promoted to the collectorship at Quebec. Merchant networks were complemented by transcolonial administrations. Other subjects tantalised readers, and some seemed bizarre. In August 1766, the New York Mercury and Boston Evening Post instructed the public to be cautious, as a werewolf in the form of a beggar had departed Quebec and was en route to Montreal. Crime established itself as a popular genre in 1765, with a comic report dated January 24th that 25 or 30 men had abducted three prisoners from a jail who were then recaptured, only to be abducted again. Humour was a persistent device, and the acquisition of the old adversary meant that Quebec could suggest itself as a get-out-of-jail card for colonial felons. A burglar found stuck in a chimney in Boston claimed to be one John Parks of Montreal, though the paper acknowledged, by description, he is probably one of those that broke Salem jail by the name of Samuel White. A break-in at the Bishop's Palace in Quebec failed as the assailant broke the pane of glass he was trying to remove. The writer ends with a warning that any future attempt will be anticipated as many, although very dexterous, may not have been regularly brought up glaziers. Crime, however, had a serious side and its reporting served multiple purposes. It drew attention to the perfidy of the Canadiens, who otherwise were virtually ignored by the press. Their criminality was highlighted. In 1766, a Mr. Monvide merchant was mugged and robbed on the road between Saint-Vallier and Quebec, where he lost 5,800 livres in cash. News from Quebec, dated January 24, 1771, consisted of a letter dated January 14, from a man in Bertier to a friend in Quebec. It described the murder of Donald Morrison, involving a blow to the skull with a stone, and the secret depositing of his body by Jean-Baptiste Dutour, a native of France, who was subsequently imprisoned in Montréal. Dutour was eventually executed. In February 1774, readers of the Boston Evening Post and New York Gazette were treated to the gruesome murder with an axe and an 11-year-old boy by his father, Francis La Montagne, in the parish of St. Michael. Canadian criminality, however, could provide a worrying insight into a perceived bias of the Quebec regime. In Quebec 1767, sorry, in October 1767, Simon Lapointe, found guilty of theft, was pardoned by Lieutenant Governor Carlton in consideration of his being the first offender amongst His Majesty's new subjects that had been convicted of a capital crime. Lapointe, however, 
was instructed to leave the province within 30 days. Crime also functioned as a means of highlighting the assumed violence of British troops and the suspected corruption of the British military. This helped confirm colonists' fears of the effects of a dreaded standing army. In this context, Quebec appeared as yet another victim of government policy, reflected in the John Adams journal entry we looked at earlier, where he bemoaned a province awed by an army. Post-1763, colonial opposition to British regulars was at its height. 7,500 British troops were stationed west of the Appalachians. There were garrisons in Quebec, and taxation of the colonies was the imperial solution to their financing. The 1765 Quartering Act exacerbated the situation, insisting that colonial assemblies billet troops in private homes. New York's opposition was such that the legislature went as far as denying the statute's existence. Unsurprisingly, when reporting on crimes involving the armed forces in Quebec, the New York Mercury, subsequently the New York Gazette from 1768, was meticulous in its coverage. Two officers responsible for flogging a soldier of the 52nd Regiment, Donald Mackenzie, were arrested for his resulting death, though both were eventually acquitted, not according to the New York Mercury. However, when it was reported, they were found guilty of murder. Governor Murray pardoned James Douglas, previously a soldier of the 15th Foot, who had been found guilty of unspecified crimes. On November 21st, 1767, the Mercury disclosed three trials involving military personnel, George Norton of the 52nd for manslaughter, John May of Grand Larceny, and James Jones, late of the 27th Regiment for stealing calicoes. All three were sentenced to be burnt by the hand. In January 1768, it reported the body of a soldier of the 60th Regiment found beaten and shot on a roadside, murder by persons unknown. The Pennsylvania Chronicle <laughs> named him Edward Jost. Elsewhere, a roadside attack upon Captain John Malcolm by Lieutenant Burns of the 52nd Regiment attracted much coverage. A soldier was found guilty of the willful murder of another soldier's wife by smashing her skull. Yet the role of troops could also be defined positively. Montréal was devastated by a fire on May the 18th, 1765, in which 121 homes were destroyed. The army exerted themselves in a particular manner, and it said was owing to their activity that the whole town was not destroyed. In Boston, several churches collected contributions in response to the governor's plea for the sufferers by fire of Montreal in the province of Canada. And that, despite the fact that both English merchants and French gentlemen had been great sufferers. In September 1772, the successful efforts of the officers and troops of the Quebec garrison to bring a fire at the city's seminary under control were reported. The imprint of Quebec on the colonial press was varied, comprehensive in its breadth, and suggestive. The 1765, sorry, in 1765, the conflict between Governor Murray and the Canadian merchants who encouraged their agents in London to petition the Board of Trade for his removal was a source of interest. Murray was recalled to answer charges the following year. Commentary on Carlton's time, however, was relatively mute. 
Disagreements between Quebec's merchants and His Majesty's Council were reported, but the governor himself, who had become an architect of the Quebec Act, remained invisible. Adverts for Quebec wares were recurrent. Cambrics, oats, Canada parchment, that sun-dried fever pack, <coughs> green peas and new drug Canada balsam. Jobs were offered. Peter McFarlane of Mont Montreal, for example, saw two tailors to work by the month or year. Vessels sailing to Quebec advertised not only for freight, but also passengers. In the early years, advertisements for land were not uncommon. A proclamation by Murray himself was published in which he refuted reports that Canada was barren, but the hoped-for surge of Anglo-Protestant settlers never materialised. By 1773, however, Quebec's recognition as part of the colonial sphere was indicated when James Rivington of New York solicited interest in his new weekly newspaper, to be entitled Rivington's New York Gazetteer or the Connecticut, New Jersey, Hudson's River and Quebec Weekly Advertiser. This litany of colonial coverage serves an important purpose. Hitherto neglected, it illustrates the degree to which Quebec had metamorphosed from conquered territory to continental partner. The province's future remained to be determined. Catholicism persisted, but the extent to which it would remain widespread was yet to be decided. Conflicts within the province between Anglo-Protestant settlers and the British regime would have seemed far from unusual to colonists who themselves were ever at odds with their own administrations. The prevalence of crime suggested a colony still in the process of development, one that offered possibilities and dangers that would again have seemed familiar, not least when Canada's native populations were involved. The trial of a Pamis, that's enslaved Indian, for the murder of a British officer and his servant was reported. The Indian was hanged and dissected. A report from Quebec dated September 30th, 1773, stated that 15 days earlier, four Canadians in a battle laden with peltries were murdered on Lake Ontario by the Indians and that the skins had been plundered. Colonists would have been reminded of the threat from natives who lay beyond the pale of settlement. But, in many ways, the image conjured was a sham. Canadians themselves featured little, if not at all, as individuals beyond the reports of crime and violence. The majority in their own historic homeland, they were rendered invisible to their new colonial partners, cited only en masse as sufferers of a fire or an outbreak of smallpox, grateful recipients of a bishop granted by their imperial masters. Readers were reminded periodically of their existence, The more recent inhabitants were to the fore. This, I suggest, was a deception that would become problematic for the rebellious colonies when it came to assessing Quebec's willingness to become embroiled in revolution. The protagonists who dominated the press coverage were the minority Canadians. They were the merchants and correspondents, the exporters and anti-administration agitators. They were fellow Protestants bearing English and Scottish names, their activities and opinions reported in a common shared language. They were the movers and shakers who echoed and mirrored colonists' own increasing resistance to the imperial authorities. And it was they who would prove persuasive when it came to reassuring their rebel neighbours that Quebec would accede to, to the newly conceived continental polity. 
1773, some colonists were aware that the imperial government had been anguishing over an answer to Quebec's future and that a decision was imminent. In June of that year, the New York Gazette and Pennsylvania Chronicle published an account of proceedings in the House of Commons. Opposition MPs were exasperated by the lack of solution to the administration of Quebec, and as Lord North, the Prime Minister, revealed in answer to a question, no more than the government itself. The government of Canada has been an object of consideration every year for these five years, but, sir, it is found to involve so many objects, to be enveloped in difficulties, and to be so connected with different interests that it is by no means the work of a day. It is at present in the way of being determined. Plans were formed, they were considered by the gentlemen in office, they referred to the Attorney General and other great lawyers for their opinions, who respectively gave in very particular reports in writing and, as is the case often with the gentlemen of the law, very contradictory were their reports. So I do not see what greater satisfaction can be given. A year later, the Quebec Act was passed into law and signed by George III in June. The king was pelted by an anti-Catholic mob as he departed Parliament. By September, American colonists were sharing their British cousin's ire. The act came as a thunderbolt. It provided a jolting reminder that the province of Quebec remained more Canadien than may have been previously thought and that the government in London was determined to act innovatively or threateningly, depending on one's point of view, to ensure that majorities continued allegiance. Thank you.